0: Rockheads, beware of hanging chat and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the Internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number three ninety one with guest Bill Wagner. Recorded live Tuesday, October twenty first, two thousand eight. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. The leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who might consider changing the name of the show to .NET Barack's, Carl Franklin. Hey, this is Carl Franklin. This is Richard
1: Campbell, and we're here at Tech Edemia in a lobby bar somewhere. We always seem to end up in bars doing intros. Although, i interesting to notice that, of course, you were at the bar here first before me, and you're only drinking water. Why is that, Carl? I have no comment. All I'm saying is that I was not qualified to supervise. <laughs> I've been there, man. I, I feel for you. Yes, well, uh, there's a certain nickname you earned because of that. That's nice. Yeah, I'm real happy about that. Uh, we'll just leave it at that. So, Richard and I are here. Uh, Richard's been doing Speaker Idol all day and uh, fishbowl recordings, right? Yeah, yeah. In fact, you did a tech talk too, didn't you? How did that go? I did. I talked to the guys who were on a uh, group associated with the Windows Online Services, and they were producing uh, uh, help and guidance and uh, tools to get IT people up and running with that stuff. And these are this is not just cloud computing, but this is more IT focused, like Exchange in the cloud and and uh, all of the server servers in the cloud. Hey, you are kind of out of your element in an IT show, aren't you? But you've been faking it well. Well, I mean, it's interesting to me, but I never worked in a big corporation like you guys. And, uh, you know, so I don't know all about all group policy and exchange. And I've never run exchange. And every time I say to some of my IT friends, should I run an exchange server? They go, no. Yeah, don't do it. Just say no. Friends don't let friends run exchange. And, of course... Exchange in the cloud is an interesting oxymoron all by itself, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it has some possibilities. Of course, there's ISPs that do hosted Exchange, so we you see the difference
1: here with Exchange in the cloud. Yeah, I'm not so sure it's not just Exchange hosted. but just on a massive scale. That's probably what it is. Yeah, in theory, that's, that's exactly what it is.
2: But we'll see. This is all new and, and you know, on the edge, and it's certainly a big topic here at uh, TechEd IT Pro.
1: So I know this is a dev show, and we're talking about IT in the intro. We don't really have any, uh, any email or any better-know framework. We just wanted to let you guys know we were here and that uh, we're looking out for your best interests, keeping you informed. Yeah, and we're on the road. We're on the road again. We're talking to everybody. Next week we'll be at Dev Connections, and then it'll be all dev again. Right. So let's uh, roll the interview that we did with Bill Wagner last week. Yes, yeah, a good one, too. He was uh, very sharp. He was very sharp, wasn't he? Yes, he was uh, C-sharp to the max. So we're going to learn some really advanced uh, things that you can do with C-sharp. Bill is a very smart guy. Well, let it roll. All right. Our guest today is Bill Wagner. Bill's been on the show before. He's co-founder of SRT Solutions. He's developed commercial software for the past 20 years, leading the design on many successful engineering and enterprise Microsoft Windows products. He now spends his time facilitating .NET adoption in clients, product, and enterprise development. Bill's principal strengths include the C-Sharp language, the core framework, smart clients, and service-oriented architecture and design. Welcome back, Bill.
3: Hello, Carl and Richard. How are you guys doing?
1: Awesome. So the last time you were on net rocks, uh was March two thousand seven and we were talking about C Sharp and the Grateful Dead of all things. And uh since then you've done a whole bunch of DNR T V shows on new features of C Sharp three O and all sorts of great stuff. Uh and really, really enjoyed those. Well thank
3: you. I had a blast uh you know coding C Sharp and uh letting other people see the the different things you can do with Link and with the uh New features in the language that uh, support it.
1: So, what's new in Bill World?
3: Well, just this week, Addison Wesley has uh, uh, finished printing, and uh, more effective C Sharp is now out in bookstores.
1: Wow, great! More effective C Sharp.
3: More effective C Sharp.
1: So that's the sort of the the sequel parlance, yeah. You know, not SQL right. Server, but the 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 <laughs> the one that comes after the first one, SQL. What I like about this
2: book, it's, it's not that big a book, for starters, which is always good, I find, and, uh, and the line, 50 specific ways to improve your C-sharp. So you're getting right down to particular technique here.
3: That's pretty much what we're trying to do, is to take you know what, what a lot of people do with books in, in this series, uh, Scott Myers more uh, effective software development series, is the title should be like your, your crib sheet to what you should remember when you're developing software. You know, so just by looking at the titles and understanding that, hopefully you can remember the best practices or the things you should be doing. And then if you need to remember exactly when certain things apply or don't apply, you know, it's a three to five, occasionally a little longer essay on exactly why that particular topic is important.
1: Cool. You know, it's a good thing you didn't do son of effective C-sharp. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Well, in in a sense, it was, um, in that the effective C-sharp book cover has a violin on it, um, because that's the instrument my middle daughter plays, and more effective C-sharp has the trumpet on the cover, because that's the instrument my younger son plays.
1: I thought you were going to say a viola. You know the difference between a violin and a viola, right?
3: Um, I know they're in different keys. Sarah does play both of them, but I don't know much more than that.
2: Well, a viola burns longer. Nice. <laughs> that's,
3: <laughs> okay.
2: That's yeah. Got it. <laughs> No offense to your the kids. art guy. Nice, yeah. yeah. The musician. Mm-hmm. All right. So, should we dig into some of these specific ways? I know you've done some of them sure. on DNR TV, but uh, you know, for folks who are just listening to the show, stuff about C Sharp. And, and when we talk about uh, specific ways, are we talking about purely three point oh things?
3: Uh, well, the book has got six chapters, and the first the first one is things you can do with generics, primarily. And so that's obviously a 2.0 feature. Uh, and that Effective C Sharp was released in 2004, so it was, you know, I'd seen the generic stuff and whatnot, but it was still moving a little bit, and it wasn't quite locked down. So it really wasn't time to write an effective book covering generics yet. And generics really lays the groundwork for so many features in the language. So that's the first thing we covered. Uh, the second chapter is a, a short bit on the things everybody needs to know about multi-threading, you know, because as we get more and more into um, multi-cores and, and, you know, you've had some other people on the show talking about the parallel effects library and things like that, you know, that becomes more part of our daily lives. Um, that one was tough because I can't cover anywhere near what you really need to cover to really be, you know, a great multi-threaded developer. Yeah. So. I covers some of the things that everybody needs, and um, Joe Duffy has written probably the best book on that. His Concurrent Windows Programming was a is the you know the the gold standard yeah, for great. what it, what you need to learn if you're really diving into that. Then um, there's a section on just design practices and in, in communicating your design intent through your code, and then the last part of the book covers the C Sharp three language enhancements. Uh, things in, involving Link as a set of libraries, and um, and finally, those few things that just don't fit anywhere else, really.
1: One thing, uh, I, one thing I liked about it is you, you attempted to show people how you can mix object-oriented and functional programming, which is really valuable.
3: I think so, and I think that's actually why functional programming now suddenly is getting more interest for um, mainline developers. You know, you... you Lisp and Haskell and some of these other languages have been around for quite a while, but the only way you can go to your boss and say, I want to do this functional stuff, and then you go, okay, yeah, sure. All right, so we're going to throw away all our code assets and use this other language. And that just doesn't fly, you know, for any size organization. And now with .NET in both VB and C Sharp, you know, you've got this ability to mix these two constructs in the same language. You know, much like object-oriented was around long before C++ became popular, but because it allowed existing applications to say, okay, we've got all this procedural code, we don't have to throw it away. We can start adopting object-oriented techniques in C++ and still call all this legacy code and slowly but surely replace the things that are ancient with things that are new and modern. And I think that's the same thing a lot of people are going to be doing with C-Sharp 3.0 and with VB9 and, and beyond.
2: Just out of curiosity, Bill, do you feel that at some point functional languages, and I think we're pointing to F-Sharp since that's the one that's going to end up in the studio, will ultimately become first-class citizens of general development, that people just build apps in F-Sharp?
3: I'm not sure that people will build entire apps in F-Sharp. And I think here, the, um, the more these languages are getting more similar, the V, B, C-sharp, and F-sharp, I think the more they're also going to get different. Uh, if you look at a functional language, you can do a lot of core algorithms with it because you don't really have to worry about system-level side effects nearly as much. You're doing all the computation and all the manipulation of, of whatever um, data and whatever business objects you're trying to modify. And there, F-sharp is going to do just fantastic. When you try to do system-level stuff, like working with file systems and, you know, transferring this data to some output device be it the web or be it a file or a database or whatever those are our side effects and f-sharp is is not really happy with that kind of a programming model and you are going to move back toward more object-oriented things and vb still has you know it's it's core mission in life being rad and very quick fast development so i think we're my own personal view of the future is that F-sharp is going to be a lot of algorithms, a lot of the, the middle business logic things may be written there. C-sharp is going to be the system-level language for .NET. And VB.NET is going to be like the UI and the RAD and the prototyping language for .NET. And we'll see a lot of applications that have assemblies that were written in all three languages.
1: Yeah, I, I tend to agree that uh, uh, just because you have a new language doesn't mean you should try to make it do everything. And uh, you know, use the language for what it's best suited for, and mixing the languages is obvious, an obvious solution. Although, how many projects do we
2: have that are really multi-language like that?
3: Well, right now, I don't think we do have that many because there aren't nearly the languages haven't matured in some sense to the point where they're really different. You know, right? Um, you look at VB and C Sharp, and it's. Probably eighty to ninety percent of the things you can do in one of those languages, you, you can do in the other. Right. So personally, for me, I'm a lot more comfortable in C sharp. So I'm more productive in C sharp than I am in VB. You know, there's really no way for me around that.
1: And it's the other way around for me.
3: Right. Right. And that's a function of you know our own history more than it is the languages.
4: Sure. You know, as
3: they keep doing things that are uh, more rad. You know, like I will pull up VB when I need to interact with Office because it is much better there. And I'll pull up VB when I need to uh, do, um, you know, XML literals. there's a feature that's not going to go into C Sharp. And uh, it's very nice in VB when I need it. Um, and I'm sure even for you, Kyle, there's things where C Sharp just seems to feel a little easier.
1: Uh no.
2: <laughs> okay, fine.
1: <laughs> Throw me a bone here, man. I'm, I'm just saying. <laughs> it's okay. But
2: you know, there's an interesting facet to this, and I, I, I'm I'm formulating a thesis here. And you know, Bob Martin was very. We we talked to him uh, last week, and he was quite influential uh, on me in the thinking of. You know, every time we bring in a new language. And, and I'm talking about F-sharp now, but every time a, a new language sort of heads towards the mainstream, its initial deployment is always as a, well, you'll do certain things in this, but you'll stay with your core language. And it's like it's a bridge to acceptability. But at the same time, I'm also hearing that there's lots going on inside of Microsoft as far as F-sharp is concerned, making it a general purpose language. That it will do everything, although admittedly, it will do it very differently from the way C and VB.NET work. You know, you've got a functional language versus an object oriented language. But all those core constructs, everything you would ultimately need to do, you could do in F in theory. You'll just do it a very different way. And I just, I'm still trying to, I'm not ready to really present this as a whole thesis yet, but I've got the sense that developers want to develop in a language. And that while two people might work together in different languages, and certainly the CLR has done a great job of making that possible, normally people want to think in a language. So you think, Richard, we're moving towards functional features in C Sharp? Well, wouldn't you point to, and Bill, jump in on this, don't you point at Link and say that's a functional feature of C Sharp?
3: Oh, it very much is. There's a lot of things in C Sharp that are uh, functional uh, related to that, you know, all the the Lambda calculus is clearly a functional feature. Um, the lazy valuations for link queries is functional. Right. Um, anonymous types kind of comes from a functional. Um,
1: it's necessary back, for functional yeah, right. concepts. Well, Uncle Bob seemed to think that we'll all be programming regular business line of business applications in, in F-sharp someday or in functional languages anyway.
2: I, I don't and even know
1: that he said everybody, but I, I think the implication here, which
2: I think is far more important, is somebody will be.
1: And that is yeah, well, a big the, deal because the language isn't there yet. Somebody will do anything, though. I mean, it doesn't really matter. The question is, you know, will a majority of people do that? Well, for me. I, it's I just more think there's, I, I, hear, I hear you, Richard, because of the history of languages and new languages come out and it takes a while to adopt them and all of that. But functional programming is so different from object oriented or procedural programming. It's so different. I totally agree. The the thing that
2: I, th- I think is compelling here is once somebody does build an all up app in F sharp like that that isn't odd, that is just a mainstream kind of app, and you can read it. And it's better it's fewer lines of code, it's faster, it scales, something's better about it. Now you have to have a conversation.
3: See, and that's where it gets interesting because if you look historically, things like Lisp and and other languages like that were approaching computer science from a very abstract mathematical model, right? Right. And the knock against them was they were incredibly slow. Yeah. on, on, On hardware of a certain vintage. And now suddenly that seems to be going away, right? You've got more cores than you know what to do with, and they're faster than you know what
2: to do with. Well, and back then, if you go back into that time space of the late 70s, early 80s, where we were exploring all these languages, I mean, that functional languages existed back then, and there was a battle between the sort of object-oriented language approach and the functional approach, and objects won. And here we are today, the, the sort of consequence of that success is all of this stuff built around that model, and now um, Intel's screwing us. But I mean, fundamentally, it was predicated well, on faster and faster processors, and now that we have to go to multi-cores, the rules have changed.
3: Now, this is also gets back to one of my original statements here on this one, is that I think Objects won because there was so much C code in the world. And Beyond Strewstrip came up with C++, which was by no means the first object-oriented language. Nope. It wasn't even the first mainstream object-oriented language. And for a
2: long time, object-oriented people would say C++ wasn't an object-oriented language. Yeah, it right. was a hack. It was an add-on to C, but that was the genius of it.
3: Yeah. But C++ was the first object-oriented language that preserved the investment companies had in code.
2: Yeah, you, you hit it, Bill. That's exactly it. What
1: made it viable was they created a path. And that is exactly why I think that you know, the future of where functional languages fit in is alongside our object-oriented languages with, into which we have invested millions and millions of dollars and years and years of effort and billions of lines of code. And the the CLR totally facilitates that. It makes it possible that we can
2: start incorporating this new language in. But I guess the vision here, the the question, Mark, really is, are we better off altering C-sharp to take advantage of functional elements, or are we better off with a new language that works in a different way? And we'll initially maybe do it as a bridge where some assemblies are built in F-sharp, some are built in C-sharp, but... We're and then you get to this question of: Are we sullying F Sharp when we put in general development constructs? Yeah, I I don't know. I, here, I, I,
1: here,
3: yeah, here, yeah, I'd actually <laughs> say that it's it's a bit of both, right? Because the C Sharp community right now is clearly much bigger than the F Sharp community. Oh yeah, it's been around longer.
1: The so. F Sharp community is basically Ted and Amanda, isn't it? <laughs> well, Don, Don and Justin
3: Campbell. Um, and Don Sime. You, know, but, <laughs> you like so, that, Richard? You know, so there's, I'm there's, kidding, I'm
2: kidding. Oh, you're it's, funny, man. They, uh, Them and the too. Fox Pro guys get together. It's
1: dinner for six. Oh, please. I am not laughing. You're not laughing, I'm okay. I'm not laughing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's what the guys, the Fox guy said to the other side. says, you know, we were doing functional programming back in the 80s. Right, right. But then
3: uh, I did have a point here before
4: you got <laughs> on this. Sorry. I just totally hijacked
2: your point. Uh, yeah, totally. Yeah,
3: you know, so... I think it's going to keep growing in both directions, you know, and, and the F sharp community will get bigger. Um, and, you know, in terms of the purity argument, Richard, is one of the things, um, I heard it from Anders, but I don't know that it's, that he wasn't quoting somebody else, was that there's two kinds of functional languages, those that are really pure and those that somebody actually uses.
2: No. Oh. Nice. Beautiful.
3: So, you know, so it's, it's kind of hard to, you know,
2: it's very hard it's to argue with Anders. The guys ship more languages than we ever will in our lives, period. Of course. So, so you know, the, and, and so when you hear a guy like that admit that, you know, you have to do what you have to do to
1: languages to get people to use well, them. Well, he is a little biased towards C Sharp, don't you think?
3: Well, sure. But he's also, he's certainly adding these
1: functional features to C Sharp. Right, of course. And that's his thing. That's, that's, that's his uh, so agenda. It,
2: I'd love to get him on the show and ask him exactly that question. Do are you, you think it's better off to adopt elements of functionality into C Sharp, which I presume he'd say yes, over building a whole of new language that, say yes. that focuses on this? Of course, he'd say yes. <laughs> well, not necessarily. You know, he's written other languages too.
1: Yeah. Well. Well, anyway, uh, so suffice it to say that the functional language topic marches on, and we we learn a little bit more. Every time we do a show, it seems. I think so. What? Uh, yeah. What? What else can we talk about in terms of um, you did you did quite a bit with link and lambda expressions. Speaking of functional programming,
3: sure. Okay. Well, there's a lot of different things we can do now with with link and um, you know even outside of looking at databases and and um, data that's in a database and and I think it does bring a lot of things where. Looping back to the functional language thing for a second, you know, SQL is a form of a functional language, right? Mm-hmm. Right. It's much more expressions. It's not an, an imperative set of, of steps. So when you write SQL queries, you're writing a function to retrieve data, and that sort of fits naturally in the link. Uh, a lot of the the portions that I covered in the book was more how these same language topics can be used anywhere in your program to do all kinds of different things. So. Yeah. You can do things like, with generics right now, you know, you can only specify constraints as a single base class or implementing some set of interfaces, you know, or the specific, you know, class or struct um, constraints or a new constraint. If you need some other functionality, you can define some kind of a delegate or some kind of a, um, a function definition and say, when you're creating this thing, you have to hand me a function that matches this signature to do something. So now you can define all these method constraints using lambdas or anything, and you can create any kind of factory or any kind of, you know, add method or whatever else you need that isn't defined clearly in an interface somewhere. So there's a lot of ways you can start passing functions around as data throughout your program and evaluate Mm -hmm. them when you need them, which has some very nice effects all the way through, um, you know, keeping things, you know, separating concerns, And evaluating things only when you need them rather than pre calculating um, results that you may or may not need. So you can start throwing all these algorithms around as pieces of data throughout your program, which is a very different way of thinking.
2: Well, and power, you know, the funny thing is that now you get back to your comment about how Lisp and those early languages had such serious performance problems. The power you get into when you're able to hand a function as a reference rather than a result as a reference is you can actually end up boxing or constraining that function to the point where it's a reasonable thing to execute where you started out with it being just a massively huge computation.
3: Right. And then things start happening only when you need them, right? right. So now I don't have to pre-calculate one of, say, 10 different calculations to pass in the sum method where mm-hmm. it's only going to use three of them because of the other conditions it's going to look at. Yeah. Okay, So there's a whole lot of things you can do that way you um, facilitate programs that put a lot less memory pressure on a machine um, and uh, evaluate things only when you need them, you know, where there's time constraints on or, or where the, the data is time dependent.
1: Confusion in public interfaces. This is one of your bullet points. How to avoid confusion in public interfaces.
3: Ah, well. I'm trying to think which one that references.
1: Creating composable interfaces and avoiding uh, confusion in public interfaces.
3: Okay. So the composable interfaces is one of the things that you see a lot in in-link and in the query methods. And that what we're trying to do to create a composable interface is where we can put together a set of methods in a sequence and actually chain these enumerators and iterators together so that We only loop through the the sequence once rather than loop through the entire sequence to perform one calculation, then loop through it again to perform a second transformation, loop through it a third time to filter things, and then loop through it again to try to sort it, and then finally loop through it one more time to find some particular value and then return that one thing. When you have a composable interface, you are putting things together you know, in the form of Know, you know, sequence dot where dot select, you know dot group by or whatever. Yeah. Um, so that all those things can just flow from one method to another. And the key to doing that is to be able to put together an interface that doesn't have extra ref and out parameters anywhere. Um, simply takes hopefully one sequence as an input or a sequence and a method as an input and returns a sequence or a scalar on the other end. And then you can start chaining those together and composing multiple statements together.
1: I want to just take a minute to uh, bring you a message from our sponsor, Telerik. Our friends at Telerik are working hard as usual to bring you exciting new stuff for your .NET toolbox. How about two brand-new control suites, RAD controls for WPF and RAD controls for Silverlight? That's right. If you started building next-generation applications you now have UI components with Telerik quality and Telerik reliability. Both product lines are derived from the same code base and share the same API, so transition is seamless. Uh, They have many improvements in the other robust suites for ASP.NET, AJAX, and Windows Forms also, as well as the intuitive reporting tool. But product alone isn't everything. To jumpstart your projects and help you easily get up to speed with these great tools, Telerik has got a couple of unique training resources the Telerik Interactive Trainer, and Telerik TV, of course, which I'm the host of. Now, that's what I call summer heat. Go check out all the details at Telerik.com, T-E-L-E-R-I-K.com. And if you happen to run into those guys, say thanks for supporting .NET Rocks. I have a feeling this, this idea is pretty foreign to a majority of, of C Sharp developers and VB developers as well. It
3: is going to be a little different, although... You know, we've seen a lot of the simple examples in, in all the link queries. you Sure, know, but you know, doing problems. them yourself. Right, but the more you practice it, the easier it gets. And it's just looking to at an API signature to make sure I can put some things together very quickly without extra checks on the logic. So one of the examples that are used in the book is if you look at the triparse methods for double and int and, and any of the other numeric values. I pass in a ref to an int, you know, try parse with a string. I'll return a Boolean value as to whether or not it succeeded. And then if it succeeded, this out parameter that I pass to the method is where the actual number is. Well, that's not composable because I call that method, and now the very next line is going to be if, you know, success, then do something, right? Yep. Yep. So one of the things I do is I wrap that into an extension method where I can... Make it something that's composable. So I'll call tryParse, and return either an int or a nullable int, depending on the on the behavior. If I have a default value, or if I just want to know it's not there. And now the return value conveys all the information, whether or not it succeeded, and if it did, what the number is. And I can pep- pipe that nullable int direct, you know, the return value directly into whatever processing I want to do. So it avoids all this extra control logic you know, in, in the calling code.
1: Must have been an electrical engineer that came up with this kind of stuff because it very much reminds <laughs> me of signal flow and electrical flow. Richard, don't you There's think? some of that. Yeah.
3: And the other analogy I've used is if you look at lean manufacturing, you know, where they're trying to really minimize queue sizes, right? So if I'm, say I want to send mail to every customer that ordered something from me in the last week, okay? If you think about a traditional imperative approach. First, I'm going to run a query and I'm going to find all my customers. So now I've got a collection of all my customers. Now I'm going to filter that to find all the customers where they sent sent an order in the last week. And now I'm going to filter that or process that to find all their addresses. And now I'm going to generate the um, you know the mailing. Okay. And if you try to envision that like it's a factory inside your computer, you've got one person building this whole stack of customers, and they'll hand the whole stack off to the next person, who then sorts it and hands a stack off to the third person right. who creates the mail, right? And if you think of a lean manufacturing thing, the first person would just find the first customer, hand it immediately to the second person, who then looks to see if it's the, the um, in the right head of the order in the last week, and if so, throws it in one bin, if not throws it in another, and you get this whole pipeline of, of things moving without all this data stuck partway through the process in a queue waiting to get picked up, okay? Because the way computers work, you don't get the same time lag like you do in manufacturing, but the concept is similar.
2: All right, I'm, I'm baffled. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little baffled, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I get baffled? what you're saying, but I'm still thinking about how I'm going to apply this. Like, it's, it's an interesting problem. So and and you're doing it basically through interface declarations. Like do it again, Bill. Walk us through this. I want to get this right cuz it it sounds important, but I'm not fully grasping what you're saying.
3: Okay. The idea behind all of this is that there's a combination of lazy evaluation, which is that we'll actually execute code when we need it. Right. Okay. So, following that same lean manufacturing paradigm or, or model, It's just-in-time execution, right? I've constructed a recipe for how I'm going to find this data, and now I'm going to execute it only when you actually ask me for the data, okay? And instead of executing everything, as soon as I've got the first piece of data you asked for, I'm going to hand it to you, and you're ready to grab it and do the next thing, okay? And then I'll hand you the next piece of data when you're ready for it, okay? And by composing these different interfaces together into one pipeline, you can think of it as we're pulling all this data through from whatever the source is through a series of transformations until it gets to the end, but only when I ask for it.
2: Right. Okay, I, I get that. So what is it we're doing in code that makes that possible to avoid that whole do your first stage process until you have the whole stack done and hand it to the next one? I
1: think the key was okay. extension methods. You basically right. So you can have a this, dot, that, dot, this, dot, that sort of syntax up uh, in your calling code.
3: Right, and extension methods are the the syntactic mechanism that lets it happen, but what it's actually doing is it's a more declarative statement. And it's composing, creating interfaces that are composable, such that when I call this method, it simply does what it's going to do and returns that one value. I'm not looking for you know, different values that are returned. I don't have to check return codes and branch out logic based on what happened. It's simply a set of processing.
2: All right. Now, let's get to the confusion around public interfaces part of this. So where does the no, okay. confusion lie? besides just trying to understand what you said.
3: Right. Okay, well, that's a totally different item. Okay. (laughs) Um, And what we're talking about there is when you create public interface types, there are things that people will do that make it kind of hard to use classes that you put together. Okay. And sometimes there are things like one obvious one is um, a concern over an add method, for instance. And this is one of the things that occasionally causes issues with the eye collection interface. You know, iCollection takes an an ad that's supposed to add something to a sequence, right? Okay. Of course, ad may also mean I'm taking two different items and I'm adding them together. Okay. Yeah. So if you mix those two together, you end up with a very um, painful interface to work with. Okay, so when you put things together with that, you end up getting a lot of confusion for your users in terms of what, what does this mean? And, of course, the language supports you writing overloads of whatever methods you want, and they may or may not have to have the same meaning, but that's usually a very bad idea. Okay? Yeah. So, and now this is getting even trickier because you've got things like extension methods and other ways to extend a what looks like a class's signature, and it's easier to write multiple methods that introduce ambiguity in terms of what methods get called. Okay. So where this item takes actually quite a bit and is a lot easier to discuss under code, but there's ideas where, like let's say I have a derived class. Yeah. And I'm now calling a method on it. The way the compiler resolves um, method calls, any method that's accessible in the derived class is a better match than one that's declared or accessible from the base class. Okay. Okay. Which means strange things can happen because a virtual method that's overridden is actually defined in the base class. So it falls into that branch, but other methods may end up showing up earlier on the, um, on the drive class. And I have to look it up again to see if there's, if an extension method on the drive class comes in front of virtual methods declared in the base class. So the point being, once you put enough different stuff in there, You make it very hard for anybody looking at code to figure out what method actually is getting called here.
2: Yeah, this sounds like one of those things that's really going to bite you by version 3.
3: It can get there. So you want to be very careful. And here, the C-sharp team has done a very interesting thing that they talk about when they're modifying the language or doing things with the language there there may be good reasons to add features to the language, but you want to be very careful about them because you're stuck with them. And for us as developers using the language, you may think you're helping your users by creating more and more overloads of methods and more different ways to perform a piece of functionality, but the more you do that, the muddier it gets. So what you really want to do is think carefully and have the smallest API you possibly can Right, that still gets the job done, and isn't a burden for your users that make life um, life harder. So there's that mix of trying to design something that your users can use everything, they can do everything they want to do, but then more would start to add more confusion.
2: Are you finding people abusing overloading that way? That it's just they they put too many things in the same place essentially.
3: It's a, it's a pretty easy thing to do, right? Because you're writing this code, you're writing a component that somebody's going to use, and they start asking you for new features.
4: Right. And
3: you just start adding them, and pretty soon you've got this embarrassment of riches, and you don't know what feature to use, and you don't know which method to call. And then pretty soon, if you keep adding and more and going down that same road, pretty soon the compiler doesn't even know what method to call Well, this
2: is like a variation on the I have the class stuff. And with the one method, do, and everything else is a parameter, right? Like you could eventually get yourself into hell. That's just an extreme example of the same overload. Right, right. You know, you just, you go nuts. It, I, I find, I don't want to try and articulate every version of where you would actually use an overload. But for, for me, for the most part, that it's an exception. It's something you want to resist because it can, it just makes things confusing.
3: In a lot of ways, that's true. You know, there are good places to it do it. It
1: makes it flexible.
3: It does make things flexible. Um, one of the areas where it often makes a lot of sense is around numeric types because then you can avoid some of the conversions um, or you can control them inside your class rather than outside right Other than that, you start getting into these weird things where you know once you have more conversions and more overloads, why do you have these different types right If they're essentially the same and essentially equivalent, why do you need more of them? You're just adding more names to the space you're just adding more types that people have to understand and it's that much harder to figure out what to do okay so the idea behind it is to create your your overloaded method groups that are minimal and complete not try to add more you know once people can get the job done until you really have a compelling reason to do it in a different way
1: bill let's talk about some advanced generics techniques which uh you outlined in your book here
3: right okay so there's a few different things that are a lot of fun that we can do with um, with generics. Uh first inside generics there's a, quite a few things you can do in that because generics are a compile time construct. Things get you know that the resolution for generic types are at, at compile time. There are often times when you'll write a method that takes say I enumerable of T. An example I use in the book, which comes from the net framework is is you can take a sequence and you can reverse it, right? Well I enumerable of T only supports enumerating a collection in a forward direction. So, to implement reverse, you have to grab every element from the collection and then feed them out in the reverse order.
4: Right.
3: Okay, which can be kind of slow. Well, inside your method, you can actually look at the runtime type of the parameter and see if it supports ilist of T. And if so, then you can grab those elements out directly from the collection that you're handed in the opposite order. Parcel them out and write a much faster implementation. So inside the, of the generic type where you try to code it to use the lowest common denominator, which is I enumerable of t, you can do a, a little bit of quick runtime checking and see if there's a, you've been given a parameter that's got a better implementation and if so you can use it.
4: Uh-huh.
3: And that's stronger than if you just create a different version that takes I list of t because the actual runtime type and the compile time type may not be the same. The compile time, it might be an innumerable of T, but if you look at it at runtime, it actually is I-list of T. So if you simply overload it with different compile time references, then you can run into some issues there. Um, cool. Another thing that we talked about in the book is we can't have constraints that say the, the type parameter doesn't support something. And where that's important is if a type parameter on a class supports iDisposable and inside your generic class you're creating these things and you're letting them go out of scope, you need to write those classes defensively so that if somebody makes iList of, say, you know, GDI brush or whatever or file handles, then when your generic type creates something and then makes it go away, it looks to see if the type it created implements iDisposable. And if so, um, disposes of the object. Sure. So there's a few things in there that to keep track of, of resource allocations. Um, I talked briefly a little bit about writing um, method constraints on generics, which allow you to do a lot of different things with generics that you might not think are possible. So you can create generic types that um, perform all kinds of different methods, you can pass method parameters around into generics. Um, you know, inversion of control containers are all, will often make use of this technique where they've got a factory method that gets passed to a construction and then that's how they um, create the objects at runtime. Right. So there's quite a bit of stuff there. Um, and then there's a few pitfalls in terms of making sure that when you work with generics, Generic specializations on base classes have some interesting overload effects. When you write a, a, a method, you can actually write a method overload that takes a generic type. Okay, so it's got a type parameter on it, and then you can also write overloads that take base classes or derived classes or something like that. Right. Okay. So, as an obvious example, you can find in different things. There's, um, uh, we can write something. The example I use in the book is to be able to write a message of some type. Okay and I'll write a message handling thing so I can say write message and my base is a type that implements a message logging um, method. And then you can have another interface, say iMessageWriter. So I'll write a write message that takes an iMessage writer. And then I can write an iMessage of T or a write message of T that will call whatever objects dot two string method. Okay. Now as it turns out though the generic method is always a perfect match. Okay, so the version that uses a base or an interface may never get called because if I pass in my derived class that's derived from my base, message writer of T is actually a better match because I we use the actual type.
1: So it'll right. never actually call the, the specific, the, the one that requires the specific type.
3: Right. because the, So when you create a generic specialization, which I'll define in just a second, you want to make sure you create that on leaf classes because otherwise, everything else becomes a, a, better, ma- a better match for the generic type.
2: That's an interesting ge-
4: problem.
3: Right. And now for a generic specialization, you know, I kind of talked about it a little bit in runtime earlier. If I write a reverse method, I could write reverse that takes I enumerable of T, okay, and I can also write another reverse that takes as a parameter I list of T. Yeah. Because I know I list is has a better um, implementation. Okay, um, and in the same way, I can do something where there's in the framework there's max of t that uses i comparable to decide if to find the largest value in a sequence. Right.
1: So you're passing an object that implements both those interfaces. What happens? That's okay. Well, it
3: will hit the um, the one that it finds is the best match. Okay, right. which is the i list is more derived, so that's the better match. Right. Now in the case of max, there's a couple things that happen. So I can have max of T, which relies on i comparable of T. So I can pass strings into that because I can compare strings alphabetically. If I made a, a person type that sorted alphabetically, I could pass that in and find the max would be the, the one who was at the end of the alphabet. Well, there's specialization. There's a max of end, which just uses the, the math, you know, if A greater than or less than B and finds the largest one. Um, max of double, and others which use the specific version on that type and save a couple method calls. Okay, because max is defined on all the numeric types. All right. right. Okay. So a generic specialization is simply when I've got a generic way to do something, and I'm going to write an overload of that method for specific types because I know I have a better way to do it.
1: Will those specific types be the best match when you pass in something of that type?
3: If you write them correctly, they will be. Now, in the case I just talked about with max, you know, int, double, and all those are, you know, leaf classes or or structs. You can't derive anything from int, right? So if you pass a sequence of ints, it will be the best match because I have integers, okay? Where you get in trouble is if you make a specialization on a base class. So if I write max of person and I sort those because I have some s- fancy way of sorting those. It's quick. That won't actually get called if I take max of employees where employees are derived from person because max of T where T is employee will be a better match than max of person. All right. Right. Because one of them requires a, an implicit conversion to the base class and the other one is an exact match.
2: That makes sense. It's yeah, an interesting it problem though, and it, I I got to imagine this is very challenging to debug if you don't know about this best match issue,
3: right? And and sort of the the real short version there is to understand that a generic type parameter will always be a perfect match because it will use the yeah. the actual compile time type of whatever's passed to it, right? Okay, so so that's one of the that's probably the section on the generics that that requires the the lengthiest. Conversation and, and a fair amount of examination of code to get it cleared in, in people's mind what's going on.
2: But yeah, but i got to think there's a certain audience where once you explain that, they're like, so that's why it did that. Oh.
3: Yeah, that's why that code didn't work. Yeah. And the answer is it really did work,
2: but that's how the spec defines working. Yeah, it just didn't do what you wanted it to do.
1: Right. Can I switch over to, uh, to asynchronous programming, multi-threaded techniques? Sounds good. So um, uh, my goal when I'm trying to do multi-threaded programming is always to avoid specific locks because I find that I get lost in lock hell very quickly. I don't know about you, but, uh, you know, anytime a mutex comes out, a semaphore or a sync lock, uh, that's just bad. (laughs) So, So how do you code to avoid those things in the first place?
3: Well, the simplest thing is never share data between threads, right
1: yeah, well, sure okay,
3: so and, and and of course that's not really practical
1: that's right yeah okay,
3: so uh, and, and that gets to why multi threading programming is hard any way you look at it yeah. and, and even here you know there isn't this magic answer that says if you just do these few things that I'll say multi threaded programming will be easy because it's not, which is why this section was. Was well, a tough one to write because you don't want to mislead people, and yet hopefully there's some guidance here that will make it still hard but easier.
1: So, if you have to share data, do you recommend putting all of the data together into one class, into one object, and uh, and then simply locking that when it's used?
3: You know, that really depends on the problem. Right? There are times yeah. when that makes the best sense and then there are other times when that's probably going to lead to deadlock because there's this one thing everybody needs all the time,
4: right? Right, sure. Right.
3: So I don't know that there's a, a global set of no, guidance there isn't. There there what isn't. should you lock? And so I really didn't talk about that problem at all in the book just because I it really depends on what you're trying to solve. So a lot of what I was trying to concentrate on were things that either the language or the framework provides for you that makes it a little easier to handle threads or a little bit more or at least less painful to do multi-threaded programming. You know, things like working with the thread pool rather than trying to create your own threads and why that's easier and when you do have to create your own thread instead of just throwing things to the thread pool.
1: Using the asynchronous Um, model.
3: Right. Using the async model, um, looking at things like in, in both C Sharp and VB, there's, keywords to handle locking as opposed to, you know, calling monitor.enter and monitor.exit. Mm. And because both C-sharp and VB are, are strongly typed languages, there's stuff the compiler can do that will make it easier if you use those keywords. Um, things like if you use, you know, lock something, you can't lock on a value type because it's going to box it and you're right. not really doing what you think you're doing. Right. Um, things like trying to limit the scope of lock handles. And this is one of those unfortunate things that showed up in early samples, is that you'd see all this code that said lock this, um, which is a, a bad idea. That is a bad idea. Because you're locking something that's publicly accessible, and you can't guarantee that somebody else doesn't try to lock it as well. So if you look throughout the framework and throughout what I recommended here is to create some private variable that you're going to lock inside your class.
1: Well, you know, the, the thing that hit me when I started messing around with all this was lock, locking does two things. First of all, it locks access to that variable, but then everywhere where that lock shows up, it locks access to that code in between right. the lock and the sync lock. So, so those are two different things, right? Exactly. Yeah. Like if you just want to lock access to blocks of code, you could just create a new object and use that because it doesn't really matter what you're locking. You want to use that to lock blocks of code from access, you know, because they're going to access shared data, for example.
3: Exactly. And that's usually the most common practice. And in fact, there's an attribute in C sharp where you can just mark an attribute on a method and that attribute or that method will be synchronized, which is yeah. kind of a nice feature.
1: But do you have to derive from context bound object. I think, do you not? In uh, not in C
3: sharp. The, um, you can put a method impl, method impl options dot synchronize and ah. on, the, on the method, and that method will essentially have a, a lock, some private object that you can't see at the beginning of the. Uh,
1: so that means any code, method. only one thread can access that object at one time,
3: That period. That method, method, not the object.
1: Oh, on a method, okay.
3: Right, right. So that's a nice one. And then the big one that, you know, Herb Sutter has talked about a lot in the C++ Arena and I've talked about it in the book here is to really understand what code you're calling inside locked sections and there's a lot of ways to call hmm. you know, unknown code right you can raise an event and that's going to get handled by yeah that's bad somebody else who's in my try to call back into this section and introduce a deadlock deadlock you're going to you may call a virtual method which could do anything because right. that can be overridden in any derived class and then you know all bets are off. It could call any piece of code. Um, you know, so those are probably the two uh, simplest ways to do it. You know, Now that we've entered C Sharp 3.0 and you may actually be taking these method parameters that we talked about earlier, you have to be careful about calling into those from a, a synchronized block because you have no idea what that code's going to do. And that can really increase the chance of deadlocks and things.
1: Yeah, there is no easy answer, is there?
3: A lot of tough stuff there, which is why I really want to see a lot more of what comes out in .NET 4.0 with the, the parallel effects library in different ways to hopefully make that not my problem, but the base class library guy's problem.
1: Yeah, I think a multi-threading is the ultimate plumbing code frontier that needs to be whacked. You know, what Oh, I mean? very much
4: so. <laughs> <You> know, <there's...
1: laughs> it just needs yeah, to get ye- pushed down. Yeah, you
2: don't want us out here. Right. You right? Don't let me we do want, this. We want Joe Duffy out there, and and he can make it all work for us.
4: That's right.
3: <laughs> I just want stuff to happen. That's right. Yeah. Don't make me well, And, and you get to
2: this. an interesting point, which is I'm actually not interested in writing multi-threaded code. I'm interested in getting certain bits of work done, and I'd like that to happen in a way that doesn't suck. Right. So, yeah. you know, if that happens to be solved by multi-threading, then so be it. But I'll let somebody and something smarter than me figure that out.
3: Definitely true. I would much, you know, so I think we we'll are all agree there that that's, I'd love to see that be just totally solved.
1: I want my software transactional memory.
3: There you go. I would love that too. That would be an incredibly cool thing.
2: Well, in, okay, we got to go down this path. Let's not leave this alone, okay? It's not right. maybe it's not exactly on topic, but it, i want to get back to this point of why do we care about software transactional memory? I mean, I want this problem solved, but I'm almost like I don't care what the implementation is anymore.
3: Um, yeah.
2: And software transactional memory offers some interesting capabilities that you know we'll be able to roll back mass, mass changes and, and keep track of things like that, but it just isn't doesn't sound like an easy answer like i think we're we'll get ourselves into
1: trouble with it as well well here's the thing i know about it right uh, if you have more cores and more power you're going to be able to absorb the hit and it really it scales up when when you have many 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 threads because there's a certain amount of inefficiency in in stm just because there's a chance that there could be a collision and the whole thing gets rolled back and that could happen over and over again. But, you know, the reality is, I mean, if you have a 10 threads, 50 threads or whatever, the chances of two two of those uh, pieces of memory being accessed at the same time are very, very small. However, they cannot happen. They absolutely can't happen or you'll screw everything up. Right. So the more threads you have and the more cores you have to assign those threads to – um, the, the more benefit you'll get from STM. I'm not so sure that the hardware is, you know, you, I, think, I think it was uh, Stephen Taub who said, I think there, there's something like eight cores that seems to be the minimum, you know, for, for STM to be efficient. For it to make <laughs> sense. And, and it's an interesting thing. I mean,
2: most people never experience eight cores. You know, right. for me, the only time I play in that realm is SQL Server, and that's a dedicated machine that does nothing else. And the SQL Server geniuses created the code that utilizes those cores. Like it's completely abstracted from the world of .NET.
3: Right, but see, now this is where the, the STM model, I think, is why. You know, and I'm, I'm conjecturing, of course, but this is where I think it's it's compelling for a lot of people, is it puts this multi-threaded or concurrent problem into a domain. Yep. We we kind of understand, and at least we have some practice and guidance, right? I mean, we've all written distributed apps mm-hmm. that store data back someplace on a server. So we've all dealt with, what do we do about that optimistic concurrency problem when it doesn't right. work, right? Well, okay, it didn't work. Now you you know what you need to do. And on an application-specific thing, you can do something, right? Well, now with STM, that happens across multiple cores, right? You've essentially got the same failure. I tried to do something and it wasn't in the state we thought it was, so that failed. Now what do you do? And it makes it the same problem.
1: I haven't seen any SDKs or anything. They don't really have anything for this is still in the research phase, I guess. Yeah. But but I kind of imagine that um, that it could be fairly seamless to the to the end user, to the developer. Whereas you know the as seamless as just attaching an attribute to a method or something, uh, I can't imagine that it wouldn't would have to be so complex that we'd have to do any kind of low level management
3: right but but as I said, you still you you will ha- have this optimistic concurrency problem right yeah my transaction just failed well that now puts it in a realm we've got guidance and we've got you know, a wealth of resources to how to deal with Isn't it.
1: Isn't the whole idea of STM for it to just retry automatically for you until it fit, sure. until it does work, until there is no collision?
2: Well, the big thing is it just gives us that option. I mean, right now, when you get into a race condition, you get into this, like, mutex deadlock, yeah. there is no recovery. Right. It's that now everything explodes. I think what STM finally introduces, is just like in databases with transactions and locking and so forth, we at least have some chance of giving us a warning before disaster, right mm-hmm. blocking rather than deadlocking and recovery my my uh
1: right. my understanding of STM was that it simply it makes a copy of the in memory of the code and the data that needs to execute and it will automatically revert and try again until it until it does not lock
3: that that I didn't know but I did know it would you know it would detect you know transactional failures i thought was one of the other parts of that yeah and, and
1: rolling well, back i mean we already have that don't we we already know when there's a lock. I mean, the whole idea is that it automatically recovers.
3: Yeah. Well, it's not so much the, the, as I understand it, and, you know, this may be, we're getting off kind of in the weeds here. especially since right. We're recording this before <laughs> PDC. But uh, my understanding was that with STM, it would, when it goes to write a hunk of memory.
4: Yeah.
3: If the, the it knows what contents were there before it goes to do the write. Right. So if some other thread changed it before it got there, it would be able to have a transaction failure saying, yeah, you tried to you know, write 20 where there was 5, and I saw 7, so something happened here. Right, and,
1: and my understanding was f- from there, it, it copies back the original uh, memory mm-hmm. and just tries again. That would be really cool. I think that's the whole magic of STM.
3: Well, that would be incredibly cool. That one I had, that part of it I hadn't
1: seen. Yeah, and that's why it you know it takes um, a certain amount of scalability in order for it to work because you are going to get some uh, uh, overhead. I mean, especially not just if it fails, but I mean just the whole copying memory around and everything. Yeah, I definitely like where that could go. Yeah, I definitely do too. It's got yeah,
2: it's got huge possibilities, but still time. It's still ways off, and it makes sense if you think in context of. This makes sense when we have eight cores. We don't have eight cores.
1: Yeah. Makes sense when we have 16 cores, too. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of what software could be written, you know, that would take advantage of all that threading. But, you know, as soon as I say that, somebody's going to have one. Yeah. So, Bill, we're just about down to the end of the show here. And, boy, we've talked a lot lo- about a lot of great stuff. Uh, is there any last-minute thing you want to throw out there?
3: Well, you guys are... Definitely coming to CodeMash this year. Or, well, next year in January, right? We are, we are. So that would be fun. I'll look forward to seeing you there, and uh, hopefully, getting a whole bunch of smart people from a whole lot of different uh, different technologies sitting there together, working on a, a lot of stuff.
1: This is going to be an in uh, indoor amusement park, right? It's water park. So it's it the indoor water, the water best park
3: yeah. conference in the world held at an indoor water park.
2: It's awesome. What are the dates again,
4: uh, Bill?
3: It is January seventh through the ninth, two thousand and nine at the Kalahari Resort in Sandusky, Ohio. And by the time this goes live, the registration site will be up, and that's at www.codemash.org.
1: Very good. Awesome. Thanks, Bill. It's always a pleasure to talk to you.
3: Well, thank you very much, Carl and Richard, and I enjoyed uh, chatting with you, too, and uh, the chance to talk about the book and about new things in C Sharp and uh, go off in the weeds on all kinds of other
1: topics. Yeah. <laughs> all right, and we'll see you next time. .Net Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com Got transmitter bands by the FCC Yes, I'm a talk